Hello, everyone. A quick word before we begin. Due to some pandemic travel complications, we had to record this episode simultaneously in Victoria and Whitehorse. So it took us a bit longer to get this episode out to you than we planned, and you may hear a few audio glitches along the way. Apologies in advance. Hello and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 22, The Rush Out. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Well, that's it. Everyone in Dawson who doesn't already have a claim is leaving for the Nome Gold Rush or somewhere else. With the outside economy recovering and the Spanish-American War pushing the Klondike out of the headlines, there is no new wave of Stampeders and Skagway on their way to Dawson. The Klondike Gold Rush is over, and this is our last episode. I'm headed outside for the winter. Hey, not so fast. We can't leave just yet. We debated various ways to introduce the end of the gold rush. We decided that the best way was to just spring it on you all of a sudden. This is how plenty of stampeders realized it was over. All of a sudden, when they finally got to Dawson and found out all the good land was already staked. Or when they heard of another, better opportunity and stampeded there. So, today we're going to wrap up our podcast series. We may drop some future bonus episodes on interesting gold rush topics, but this will conclude the main narrative. This episode, we'll talk about how and when the gold rush ended, what happened to some of the people we've mentioned along the way, and the legacy of the stampede. And this includes, unlike the standard 20th century version of the story, the gold rush's cataclysmic impact on Yukon First Nations, the environment, and on those stampeders, and there were a lot of them, not lucky enough to come out of the episode rich and healthy. We'll also try to clean up a few errors we made in past episodes. We talked in earlier episodes about how there are many versions of how the gold rush started. Well, it turns out there's also many versions of how it ended. We'll tell you two of them and you can decide. The first is the conventional version. You'll find this one in most modern summaries, and it's all over the internet. The seeds for it were planted in the last chapter of Tappanadney's account, and Pierre Burton stamped it into our mental models of the stampede in his bestseller, Klondike, The Last Great Gold Rush, 1896-99. to the conventional version goes like this. It's the summer of 1899, just short of three years after the big discovery, and the Klondike Gold Rush is in a rhythm. The miners are out on the creeks, and they're hard at work. They've developed all kinds of new techniques to get the gold faster and easier. Adney estimated that at this time, Dawson had 10,000 people, plus those out on the creeks. There were brick houses, a telegraph line to Skagway, and there's an electric tramway under construction out to Bonanza Creek. The White Pass and Yukon Route Railway was just completed from Skagway over the pass to Bennett, with construction continuing to Whitehorse, and steam-driven riverboats were regularly plowing up and down the river, carrying all the latest industrial mining equipment and modern conveniences to Dawson. Then, a riverboat arrived in Dawson from St. Michael, with news, big news, news that quickly swept through Dawson and the goldfields. There had been a huge gold strike at Nome. Nome is on the Alaskan coast near St. Michael. Word spread that there was gold in the creeks and even in the sand on the ocean beaches themselves. It was said to be a poor man's strike, since the pan, rocker, and sluice box were all you needed, and it was downriver, easy. You could mostly just float down to it from Dawson, along the Yukon River itself. And that was that. Tappan Adney says that within a week of the news of the Nome gold find arriving in Dawson, 8,000 people had stampeded out of the Klondike to Nome, Cabins that had been worth $500 the week before were now free for the taking. You can see the logic here. 
Most of the people in Dawson didn't own claims or had not figured out some lucrative angle in business, dance halls, or casinos. Maybe they got to Dawson too late, or maybe they'd had bad luck. Maybe, like Swiftwater Bill, they'd already run out of the gold they found the first time and needed to find new gold, or in his case, new people to marry. Now, all of a sudden, instead of having to work for wages while someone else got rich, they had another shot at becoming a millionaire. And it was way easier than their trip to the Klondike over the Chilkoot. All they had to do was literally get in a boat and drift downstream to the coast. Of course, Dawson didn't close down completely overnight. For people like Joe Boyle, there was still lots of opportunity. The industrialization of the gold fields with the big dredges was still to come. Dawson was still the capital of the new Yukon Territory. But what you could call the rush or stampede era was over in the summer of 1899. You might call this the Burton version of the gold rush. It began with a bang when the SS Excelsior landed in San Francisco, and it ended with a bang when news of the Nome rush hit Dawson in the summer of 1899. Now for another version. For this, we've drawn heavily on recent scholarship published in the spring 2019 edition of the University of Washington's Pacific Northwest Quarterly, a scholarly journal of regional history. Specifically a paper by Alaskan historian Mark Kirchhoff of Juneau, entitled Dawson's Boom is Over, When the Klondike Gold Rush Ended and Why It Matters. The key starting point is how many people went to the Klondike and what the population of Dawson was at various points in time. In an earlier episode, we passed on Burton's famous line that Dawson was the biggest town west of Winnipeg and north of Seattle, adding that, depending on which population estimates you believed, the population could have been up to 40,000. That's a figure you regularly see cited on the internet and elsewhere. Kirchhoff's paper shares some hard facts and some educated estimates that suggest Dawson's population, like that 40,000 figure, is often exaggerated. The commissioner of the Yukon in Dawson, James Walsh, estimated that Dawson had a population of 5 to 7,000 in May 1898. This is just before the ice broke up on the river in 1898, and these people represent those who are in the region when discovery happened, or stampeded, along with Adney, in the fall of 1897 and overwintered in the Klondike. Then, in 1898, we have to factor in all those who'd come over the Chilkoot in the winter, or spring, and were waiting with their newly constructed boats at Bennett. The police posts documented the number of boats and passengers, both the first wave of around 800 boats that launched from Bennett on May 29th and those that followed shortly after. The total was about 7,000 boats and 28,000 people. Then add in estimates for the other routes. About 2,000 for the St. Michael route, plus, say, 5,000 for the Dalton Trail and other routes. Add all that up and you get, at most, 40,000 people. And, of course, not all were in Dawson. Thousands were on the creeks, and plenty got distracted along the way, as our own ancestors did, and went to Stewart, Atlin, or other places. By July, when most of the Bennett folks who were going to arrive had already arrived in Dawson, Walsh and the police did a formal census of Dawson and Klondike City. They broke the town into small sections and completed the count within a few hours. Mark kindly shared a link we've put on the episode webpage at klondikegoldrush.org to a National Archives image of the official 1898 tabulation showing a population of 16,560 people. Walsh estimated that the total Klondike population, including the Creeks, was around 30,000. He thought about a quarter of these were British subjects, of which only about 4,000 were Canadian. In the popular imagination, this is just the time when more and more people are arriving and Dawson is about to enter its peak period, 
the Paris of the North days in 1899, with packed dance halls and the antics we described in earlier episodes. These glory days did happen, but the data suggests the population was falling, not rising. In effect, a certain percentage of the population stayed to party like it was 1899, while a large number of stampeders, often those low on cash, which was a lot of people, left town. And critically, there was not another massive wave of stampeders climbing the Chilkoot. Dai and Skagway were relatively quiet, and a recovering economy and the outbreak of the Spanish-American War had popped the Klondike bubble in the lower 48. Adney himself left in September 1898. Unlike most of his book, where his first-person interviews are so valuable, the passage where he describes the 8,000 people leaving after the Nome News arrived in 1899 was written afterwards, when he was thousands of miles away. Kirchhoff cites a number of diaries and letters talking about large numbers of stampeders leaving Dawson in mid and late 1898, that is, well before the Nome News arrived. Sam Steele in the fall of 1898 estimated the population of the city was down to 4,236, with about 10,000 out on the creeks. Kirchhoff does think 8,000 people left the Klondike in 1899, but half went upriver towards the passes to Skagway and Dai to get to the coast and go home. Of the other half that went downriver into Alaska, only a fraction ended up in Nome. In this version, the stampede phase is over by the fall of 1898, a year earlier than the traditional version. There's still a wild season or two ahead for Dawson and its dance halls, but the age of thousands of Chichacos arriving with shovels and sacks of flour is over. The gold fields are becoming more professional and industrial. Indeed, gold production will remain high well into the early 1900s, but the early days of the mass army of pick-and-shovel miners was over, basically, a year earlier than in Burton's version. It's not as good a story as the dramatic arrival of news from Nome all of a sudden in mid-1899, but it has lots of historical data points to support it. No matter when exactly it happened, Dawson did move from the stampede phase into a more mature period, exploiting the gold fields and serving as a base for placer and hard rock mining exploration and development around the region. Though even after the initial deflation in the last half of 1898 and 1899, the air slowly kept coming out of the bubble even after that. The Klondike would lose more people when World War I broke out and so many men signed up and went to war in Europe, many never to return. Or in 1917, when the last ship of the season, the SS Princess Sophia, carrying so many Dawsonites outside for the winter, hit the Vanderbilt Reef after leaving Skagway. All 364 passengers and crew were lost. Dawson's decline is summed up in that moment of melancholy when Klondike Kate returns in 1933, 35 years older than however old she was in the city's heyday, and steps onto the silent stage of the empty Orpheum Theatre. Instead of a roaring crowd of stampeders, drunk with watered-down champagne and gold fever, Kate is facing silence. By this point, the whole Yukon's population was down to 4,000 people. That's a fraction of just downtown Dawson's population at its peak. On the episode webpage at klondikegoldrush.org, we have a link to the classic 1957 documentary, City of Gold, by the National Film Board and Pierre Burton, which is full of haunting footage of long-abandoned, boarded-up buildings like the Yukon Hotel or the Yukon Sawmill Company. The people who left Dawson often went on to do big things when they got back outside. Maybe they had amassed enough gold to start a new business. Or maybe the Klondike experience had changed them, made them tougher and more self-reliant. Or maybe it's just the numbers. If you take tens of thousands of people and put them somewhere, 
A few of them are bound to get famous afterwards. Here's just a few. Let's start with Tapanadney himself. We followed his story through the early episodes. If you read just one of the books on our episode webpages, we'd recommend his be the one. And if you can, get one of the versions that includes all his photos, which are spectacular. Not too long after returning from the gold rush, he married a Canadian woman named Minnie Sharp in New Brunswick. You may remember we mentioned he spent time in New Brunswick as a youth, including learning those moving water boating skills that would come in so handy in the Yukon. He returned briefly to Alaska to write about the Nome gold rush, but spent most of his years in Montreal and New Brunswick. He joined the Canadian Army in a non-combat role in the First World War and became a British subject. He had various jobs, including working for the McGill University Museum on Indigenous topics, and with Montreal's McCord Museum on Indigenous canoes and boats, one of his life passions. A curator from the Smithsonian published his papers and drawings in a classic book entitled Bark Canoes and Skin Boats of North America, which you can still find on Amazon today. Then there's John Nordstrom. He went to the Klondike age 26. Two years later, he returned to Seattle with $13,000 of gold, over a quarter million dollars in today's money, and opened the first store that started the Nordstrom department store empire. Cece Filson is another Seattle businessman. He didn't actually go to the Klondike, but in 1897, he started Filson's pioneer Alaska clothing and blanket manufacturers. Unlike many of his competitors, Filson produced quality goods and stayed in business. You can still buy the Filson Yukon Wool Anorak, made of weather-resistant 24-ounce wool. Sam Steele, as we've mentioned, went on to command a division of the South African Constabulary. He was also the first commander of Strathcona's Horse, a Canadian light cavalry unit that fought in the Boer War. The British awarded him a knighthood. He ended up with the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, the Royal Victorian Order, that one a personal gift from King George himself, and the Most Distinguished Order of St. Michael and St. George. In World War I, he was considered too old to command troops in the field, but commanded the Canadian 2nd Division while it was in Britain. Joe Boyle went on to perhaps the most outlandish of all the post-Klondike adventures. He became wealthy with his industrial gold empire, then organized a Dawson hockey team to challenge the Ottawa Silver Seven for the Stanley Cup, an amazing story that Keith made the centerpiece of one of his historical adventure novels for young readers, Game On Yukon. The wintertime trip from Dawson to Ottawa is a hockey legend, as are the games which set a number of records which are unlikely to be broken like when Ottawa star one-eyed Frank McGee scored eight goals in eight minutes on the Dawson team. Boyle then ended up in Russia in World War I, first helping the government organize its rail system for the war effort. Then, as the revolution swept Russia, he embarked on a series of escapades, including getting Romania's archives and paper currency back from Moscow, brokering a ceasefire in Bessarabia, and rescuing 50 high-ranking Romanians held by revolutionaries in Odessa. He also, they say, had a torrid love affair with Queen Marie of Romania. Speaking of torrid love affairs, we can also talk about Alexander Pantages. After he left Klondike Kate, he went on to found a chain of 84 theaters across North America. If you go to a performing arts event in Tacoma, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, or Toronto, you may find yourself in a spectacular vintage Pantages theater. Then there's also Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, where the Hollywood Walk of Fame was built by Sid Grauman with money he made with his father in the Klondike Gold Rush. Friedrich Trump, grandfather of the recent U.S. president, made some money in Bennett, serving, it said, horse meat and swan with a brothel in the back. An article in the Anchorage Daily News, which we have on the episode webpage, 
says that a reader in the Yukon Sun reported that Trump's restaurant was the best in Bennett, but, quote, I would not advise respectable women to go there to sleep, as they're liable to hear that which would be repugnant to their feelings, and uttered too by the depraved of their own sex. Trump moved to Whitehorse as the railway went through Bennett. He and his partner were in the Whitehorse Star in 1901, saying, quote, We have come to stay. Within a few months, he was gone, taking with him a tidy sum of capital to start his real estate investment empire outside. Jack London went on to become enormously successful as an author. His stories put him, for a while, on top of the list of best-selling American authors. Call of the Wild made his name when it came out in 1903, and it has been translated into 47 languages. They're still making movies about it today. You might be wondering why we haven't mentioned Robert Service very much. He is a Yukon favorite, of course, and if you haven't read the classics, like The Shooting of Dan McGrew or The Cremation of Sam McGee, you really should. But he didn't actually move to the Yukon until 1904, first to Whitehorse and then to Dawson. He sent his first set of poems, Songs of a Sourdough, also known as The Spell of the Yukon and Other Verses, to Toronto with a check to pay for them to be printed, planning to give the booklets to his friends. The men in the printing outfit liked the poems so much, even reading them to each other as they put the printing together, that the publisher sent the check back and offered service a publishing deal. Before the official release date, sales boomed so much that they needed to do seven printings. There are dozens of less-known figures as well. Duff Patello of Patello Bridge fame in Vancouver, for example, started as a lawyer in Dawson, known for his crisp big city outfits and his battles against the same corrupt political machine that caused Sam Steele so much trouble. In the 1930s, he was Premier of British Columbia and attempted to annex the Yukon to extend British Columbia to the Arctic Ocean, complete with big schemes for a highway to Alaska and massive mining projects. Some in the federal government were intrigued. The country was in the middle of the Great Depression. The population of the Yukon was down to 4,000 people, and the Yukon was only generating $1 of revenue for every $2 Ottawa spent there. We've put an entertaining McLean's Magazine article from 1937 about the proposal on the episode webpage. This deal never happened, of course. This list goes on. We also want to discuss some of the errors we made during the podcast, as well as some of the historical controversies continuing today on some of the key points. Our apologies for any errors, and thanks to those who emailed with questions or additional facts. A number of people asked about Pierre Burton's book Klondike as a source. Some asked why we didn't use it more. Some asked why we used it at all. Lots of Northerners, from my great-grandmother, whose father and father-in-law were both stampeders, to professional historians, have accused Burton of exaggeration. Burton is a tricky source. On the one hand, you have issues around historical accuracy. On the other, he's a wonderful storyteller and did an enormous amount to revive interest in the Gold Rush story over the years. But, reader beware, as they say. When we used Burton, as we did for the population of Dawson, as we just discussed, we tried to double-check his passages and to introduce them with the necessary cautions and caveats. Our apologies if we missed doing that on occasion. A good lesson. Timelines are another issue. Getting the date right for even well-known historical episodes is trickier than you might think. All kinds of different sources have different time frames for the gnome discovery, for example, when the news got to the Klondike and when and how many people left. We tried to go back to the sources written at the time as much as possible. However, even this approach has problems. Since communications were so poor, even people writing at the time might get things wrong. The same problem applies for the outbreak of the rush. Mark Kirchhoff also kindly shared some of his research on the timelines early in the stampede. Relying on Adney, we told you back in episode 5 
that the SS Excelsior arrived in San Francisco with its load of gold on June 16, 1897. But that was one of Adney's rare mistakes. The Excelsior actually arrived on July 14th, with the Portland steaming into Seattle very shortly afterwards. Apologies for that one. Another one is exactly when the word of the big find in the Klondike got out. Remember that Discovery Day is in August 1896, and the big stampede didn't happen until after the Excelsior and Portland arrived in July 1897. That's almost a year. We told you that although a few people might have made it from the Klondike to civilization over the winter, their stories didn't make it into the papers. That's not correct. It's definitely true that the big public mania didn't happen until July and August 1897, when those prospectors staggering under the weight of their gold disembarked from the Excelsior in Portland. But those who paid attention would have already known that a very promising find had happened. With mail service and sourdoughs going outside over the winter of 1896-97, to word did get out. William Ogilvie's report got to Ottawa in October 1896, according to Mark. And the Boston Journal printed the news with the headline, quote, Great Chunks of Gold, later that year. And the New York Times announced a, quote, Rich Strike at Klondike, spelling it with a C, not a K, in its January 31, 1897 issue. Other papers covered it too, including in Seattle. Among the fraternity of prospectors and traders with Alaska and Yukon experience, scattered around Seattle, Juneau, Victoria, San Francisco, up and down the West Coast, Plenty of people had heard news of the big discovery, and many of them left for Alaska on ships that spring that would get them to the Chilkoot Pass or St. Michael in time to get to the Klondike that summer, well ahead of the later crowds. Thanks again to Mark for putting us straight on that. Soapy Smith is another controversial topic. Back in episode 11, we told the story of the famous shootout in which Soapy Smith died. We made sure to say that there were wildly varying views of the event— and that we told the conventional version of the story, in which Soapy was shot by Frank Reed, who in turn died from his wounds afterwards. But there is lots of interesting evidence supporting other versions out there. We won't get into it today, but there is enough there for a whole bonus podcast sometime. Let's wrap up with the legacy of the gold rush. But the legacy for whom? Starting with the Stampeders themselves, if you got back home from the Klondike healthy and in one piece— you just had the experience of a lifetime. You'd proven yourself against some wildly unexpected challenges. Whatever life had to throw at you next, you could look it in the eye. If you came back with some gold, even better. Maybe you could start that shoe store in Seattle you'd been thinking about. It was different, of course, if you were at the bottom of a frigid Yukon lake, or frozen solid like the main character in Jack London's To Build a Fire. Even if you survived, you might be maimed physically or psychologically, Body parts lost to frostbite, diseases like scurvy or tuberculosis that might shorten your life. This was the reality for many. A few stayed in the Yukon, mining or trapping. Maybe not rich, but with an interesting, independent life that gave you no interest in returning to the farm or office you came from. For the First Nations people who were there, it was a cataclysmic event. A few mastered it on their own terms. Quiche, also known as Skookum Jim, got rich, and endowed the Skookum Jim Friendship Center, which still does good in the community 120 years later. But for many others, it was catastrophic. Deadly diseases spread rapidly, killing people of all ages. Wildlife was decimated, and traditional hunting and trapping territories disrupted. Those who attempted to join the industrial economy often faced racist restrictions, as we mentioned in earlier episodes, and were paid less or mocked as inferiors. 
Eventually, Yukon First Nations would negotiate modern treaties like the Umbrella Final Agreement and the Self-Government Agreements. But that took a long time, a very long time. More than 100 years from the discovery of gold, for example, for the Trondrakwichin First Nation based in Dawson. From a big-picture historical point of view, the gold rush solidified Canada's claim on the Yukon and created the Yukon Territory. The place we call home would be very different if it had remained an undeveloped part of the Northwest Territories. Economically speaking, the gold rush yanked the Yukon watershed, an area the size of France and Germany combined, into the modern global economy in just a year or two. Railways, steamboats, electricity, commercial banks, limited liability companies, the whole package. Within a couple years of discovery, global capitalists like the Guggenheims were making big-dollar investments in the Yukon Territory. But while the gold rush opened the Yukon to global capitalism, after a few years, it became clear that global capitalism wasn't actually very interested in the Yukon. The population declined, the railway was never extended past Whitehorse to Fort Selkirk or Dawson, and while mining continued, it did not power a new generation of growth. In that sense, the Klondike Gold Rush's legacy is very different from how, say, California kept growing after its gold rush put it on the map. Nonetheless, the stampede had a big economic impact, especially on the West Coast. If you'll recall from the introductory episodes, North America was suffering a severe economic crisis in the 1890s. Then, suddenly, you had tens of thousands of people investing in outfits, buying clothes and supplies, paying for train and ship tickets, and so on. As Erastus Brainerd immediately sensed, for example, this would be very good for the economy of Seattle. The total amount of gold extracted is another figure up for debate. The official annual report of the Mineral Production of Canada says that for the years 1897 to 1900, the total for gold production was $23 million. That's well over half a billion dollars in today's money. But keep in mind that many prospectors did not declare their findings to the Canadian government. The real number is undoubtedly much bigger. Some think more than double. Some have tried to calculate what all the stampeders invested in their expeditions just in terms of dollars, not counting their physical and emotional health, and then tried to compare that to the total gold production. Depending on how much gold was actually found, and how many tens of thousands of stampeders you divide that gold between, and subtracting the expense of the Northwest Mounted Police and other government programs in the Yukon at the time, you might conclude the whole episode was a poor return on investment, especially for the majority who did not get rich. But that doesn't mean the economic ripples of the Klondike Gold Rush were meaningless. Even eventually unprofitable investment on a large enough scale can stimulate an economy in a recession. And remember that the U.S. and Canada were on the gold standard at the time, so a big increase in the gold supply actually resulted in what today we would call a stimulative monetary policy. We looked up figures for world gold output, monetary gold, prices, and interest rates in the 1890s and 1900s to see if you might be able to see the impact of the Klondike gold rush in those figures. According to research in a paper from Brookings Institute, we've linked on our website, the price level did fall steadily through the 1890s before turning up sharply around 1900 as the economy recovered. This would be just as the Klondike gold was entering the monetary system. Furthermore, the monetary gold stock grew just 11% in the 1880s. Then, in the decade ending with the gold rush, it grew more than three times as fast, and four times as fast in 1900 to 1909. The Klondike Gold Rush definitely contributed to this, but how much is hard to say. The Brookings paper mentions Alaskan and Canadian gold in particular, 
but also talks about sharp increases in South African production as well. The economy may have been recovering by the late 1890s anyway. At a minimum, the Klondike Stampede gave it a high publicity boost. Let's conclude with the Stampede's legacy in popular culture. It's hard to imagine today just what a global phenomenon the Klondike Gold Rush really was back in the day. It was front-page news around the world. Jack London and Robert Service were globally best-selling authors. Sam Steele became a boyhood hero across Canada. Seattle's Alaska-Yukon Pacific exhibition attracted millions of people. Mark Kirchhoff, in his article, points out that people were even naming their babies Klondike. We looked up a few, such as Goldie Klondike Fletcher of Nebraska or Klondike Alaska Slaughter of Kentucky. There are communities named Klondike with various spellings in almost a dozen states and provinces. Texas, Wyoming, and Georgia even have more than one. Even today, brands looking for some association with adventure, cold, or ruggedness pick the Klondike name. There are ice cream bars, boots, coats, 4x4 trucks, games, potatoes, even industrial lubricants. We just found out about a video game named Klondike, The Lost Expedition, that apparently has thousands and thousands of users all over the world. The story continues. We're glad we were able to contribute a podcast to the list. It's been a lot of fun for both of us putting it together, and a wonderful chance to reconnect with some of the old stories and reflect on the amazing adventures our ancestors embarked on back in 1897. We really hope you enjoyed it, and any future bonus episodes we put out as well. We also hope that, for listeners who don't live in Alaska or the Yukon already, you'll put the Chilkoot Trail, Yukon River, and Dawson City on your bucket lists. To wrap up, we thought it was fitting to leave the last words to one of the Stampeders. In fact, Tabernadney himself, as he thought about his experience when he floated out through the magnificent scenery along the Yukon River, and then on the long steamboat ride to Seattle. Quote, A fitting close to 16 months of an experience that none of us can hope to see repeated in a lifetime. A life of freedom and adventure has a fascination which grows rather than diminishes. And yet the privations that every person who went to the Klondike endured taught him better to separate the good from the bad, the essential from the non-essential, and to recognize the real blessings and comforts of civilization. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like this episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub stake back. Thank you.